0: A man named S.M. Lockridge is certainly one of the most uh, influential and significant preachers of the last century. For 40 years, he pastored the same church in San Diego. Uh, he retired in 1993 and went to be with the Lord in 2000. So I moved to LA right after that. Never got to hear him preach in person, but have heard many of his messages. S.M. Lockridge is name, the S.M., by the way, stands for Shadrach Meshach. Parents, you want your your son to grow up to be a preacher, name him Shadrach Meshach, and his younger brother Abednego. (laughs) He wrote a poem that's uh, well known. It's called, uh, It's Friday but Sunday's Coming. And many of you I'm sure are familiar with this poem. It's often used in sermons. I just wanted to read it for you, at least a portion of it, the first part of it. It goes like this, it's Friday. Pilate's struggling, the council is conspiring, the crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burdened. The world's winning. People are sinning and evil's grinning. But they don't know it's only Friday and Sunday's coming. I've drawn in my Bible a line between verses 21 and 22 of Psalm 22. Arrow points up, verses 1 through 21, and I just have written, it's Friday. 22 all the way to the end, it's Sunday. There's a world of change in this psalm between verses 21 and verses 22. In the first half of the psalm, you see the Savior nailed to the cross. In the first half of the psalm, you see the Savior forsaken by the God who sent him. The psalm begins, if you remember, in verse 1 with the question the Savior asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It ends in verse 21, that section, with the Savior surrounded on the cross. He's describing his enemies as if they were animals, lions with their mouths open, wild oxen circling around them. You might say he's being encircled by sharks. He's on the wrong end of the sword. He's been stripped naked. His clothes have been raffled off by the, the guards. He's, in verse 16, his hands and feet are nailed to the cross. In verse 17, he can count all of his bones. That's the first half of this psalm. He was mocked by the crowd, insulted by the insolent, ridiculed by the robbers. Ultimately, he is executed, crucified, murdered you could say it was the result of a trial but the trial was far from legal this was a sham trial the reality is this was a vigilante's murder he was executed as a matter of political expediency for the roman government not for any wrong that he had done and they all knew that but in the middle of that in the middle of that betrayal in the middle of that injustice was in fact justice as God imputed our sins to him. God took the sins of all of those who'd ever believe and credited them to Jesus. And God treated Jesus as if Jesus had done our sins so that he was suffering and dying in our place. The nails, you could say, physically held him to the cross, but the nails are not what killed him. What killed him was the wrath of God that was poured out on him. He suffered for our sins, And this was not some, some kind of judicial fiction. God has the power to actually transfer our guilt from us to him. So in that moment, the most sinless person who had ever lived became the most sinful person who had ever lived. Jesus, who was God in human flesh, had lived his whole life, never once sinning, never once breaking one of God's commands, never once failing to do something God wanted him to do. I mean, he led the perfect life. And at the end of his life, he was betrayed and he was executed, but also God transferred our sins to him. So the sinless son of God, the picture of righteousness, dies a sinner's death because at that point he became a sinner. He never committed an act of sin, but our sin was given to him. So yes, he's on the wrong edge of the sword. Yes, he's surrounded by lions and wild oxen, verse 21 describes. But the truth is, is that he was receiving the wrath of God that our sins demand. Now he bore this all in six hours on the cross. And you might wonder how can somebody bear eternal punishment for someone in only a few hours? I mean, it would take you an eternity to pay for your sins and you still wouldn't be done. That's because all of your sins are against a holy and righteous God who demands an infinite punishment. You can't pay it. And yet on the cross Jesus suffered not just for your sins but for all the sins of all who would ever believe and he did so perfectly in six hours. How's that possible? Well because he's an infinite person. Because he has infinite capacity to absorb wrath. Because he was sinless. Because he was God in human flesh. He can absorb more than just your wrath. He can absorb the wrath propitiate is the theological term pay the penalty pay the fine for all the sins of all who would ever believe and so that's what's happening in the first half of the psalm and this is why God has turned his face away of course God is too holy to be in a relationship with any sinful person much less the most sinful person who's ever lived and that's what Jesus was at this point point. and so obviously the father turns his face away Obviously, the Father is not in fellowship with this person at this time because the Father is too holy for that. And so the psalm begins with the Son of God crying out to the Father saying, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by his friends, but the fiercest blow was the one that justice gave when he was abandoned by his heavenly Father and that's why the section in verse 21 it ends with you have rescued me or answer me some translations might say in Hebrew that's the last word in verse 21 and this is how Jesus's life played out too isn't it he led his perfect life he was nailed to the cross he was dying of dehydration as verse 15 says his tongue was stuck to his mouth he couldn't speak they held up a sponge to him that contained some kind of wine vinegar mixture. He absorbed that through the sponge. I wouldn't even say he drank it. I think he absorbed it, in his, in it through the sponge just to wet his mouth so that he could proclaim in a loud voice, it is finished. Tetelestai was the Aramaic word. Here, it's just declared as you will answer me. It is done, or at the end of verse 31, he has done it. And then the scripture says he surrendered his soul to death it wasn't the romans who killed him or the the jews betrayed him but they didn't ultimately weren't responsible for taking his life because he surrendered it voluntarily he had completed his atoning work for sin he yielded his flickering torch of life to to death he closed his eyes the mortal was swallowed up by the grave the agonizing turmoil in verses 1 through 21 come to a conclusion. And at the end of verse 21, you realize God did not answer his prayer while he was alive. He was the Savior sent from God who was praying to God, but God turned his face away. There was nobody on the other end of the line, so to speak. And I don't want to repreach everything I did last week in the first 21 verses, except to say that when that section ends, there is no answer. God does not hear his prayer in life. And then he goes to the grave but then everything changes. Once he dies, he's restored to the father. Once he dies, his prayers are answered. Once he dies, he's received into heavenly fellowship. And you think a fat lot of good that does. Yeah, but he resurrects from the grave. (laughs) So he comes back to life, walking on earth, making his dwelling among us, living on the earth, resurrected from the dead. That's the message that's the white space between verse twenty-one and twenty-two is his resurrection. And now I hope you notice how much the psalm changed from verse twenty-two to the end. First of all, all the verb tenses change to the future. The first half of the psalm he's in turmoil; he is surrounded by his enemies; he is afflicted. God is ignoring him, is forsaking him, is abandoning him. But the second half of the psalm it all goes future. Look at verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's looking forward into the future. Verse 25, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall or will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. Not just, we're not just talking future verb tenses here. Look at the end of verse 26. May your hearts live forever and what kind of verb tense is that just keeps on going (laughs) forever and ever you'll be alive again verse 27 all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh the nations will worship before you verse 27 verse 20 or verse 30 posterity shall serve him it will be told to coming generations do you see how much future we're talking about he's not talking about tomorrow God will hear my prayer He's talking about generations from now. People who were not alive when this is written or not alive when this is fulfilled will be born and they will hear about it. What will they hear about? Verse 31, that he has done it. Well, what exactly has he done? The he here, I think, speaks of the Savior's completed atoning work certainly includes God resurrecting him from the grave that's what he's done God has made the divine plan of salvation and executed it God planned in his mind how he would save people as I mentioned your sin separates you from God because of your sin you cannot be in a relationship with God you're separated from him because God is too holy to be in a relationship with you you're too sinful to be in a relationship with him And what I mean by a relationship with God is simply he's not going to answer your prayers. He's not going to forgive you for your sins. He's not going to welcome you into eternal fellowship when you die. That's what I mean by that. And that's your current situation. But God was not content to let you go your own way. He wasn't content just to let you live your own life indifferent to him and then die and face the consequences for your sin. He loves you too much for that. And so he crafted a plan of salvation and he executes it by sending his son to this world, leading a sinless life, dying on the cross for your sin. And so you might say, how do I know he did die for all of my sins? How do you know I'm still not gonna have to pay for my sins when I die? And that's the, the answer that the resurrection gives. I mean, you know you've paid your bill when you get a receipt. You know you've paid your power bill if the power is still on, you could say it that way. You know you've paid off your car when you get the title. You know you paid for the concert tickets and your payment was accepted when you get the concert tickets. How do you know that your sins were paid for? Because Jesus rose from the grave. He justified you. He declared you having have had your sins paid for, atoned for. This is what the Bible means in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we also be saved by the wrath, uh, uh, from the wrath of God? The hard part was Jesus dying on the cross. The easy part is saving you. You could say it that way. You know, if a firefighter rushes into a, a building and, and saves someone from, from the fire, he's going to make sure that person is transported to the hospital. The hard part was going to the fire. The easy part is getting to the hospital. If a lifeguard sees someone at the bottom of the pool drowning and and kind of giving up and the lifeguard swims down and pulls the person up off of the the deep end and the person might be fighting him back and everything and the lifeguard rescues you and pulls you to the side of the pool and puts you up on the the ledge there, the lifeguard's gonna get out and treat you. The hard part was rescuing you. The easy part is taking care of you next. The hard part for God was Jesus dying on the cross to pay for your sins. The easy part is saving you when you place your faith in him. That's what happens between the first and second half of the psalm. The first half is the Savior suffers in your place. The second half is people believe it as the good news goes into the world. The second half answers all the problems of the first half. I hope you noticed that. The first half, God, why have you forsaken me? The second half in verse 24, you have not hidden your face from me. In the first half, the Savior comes across as a victim. But in the second half, you realize he's actually the victor. The first half seems like a plan gone wrong. The second half, you realize, no, it's actually the plan. (laughs) You think it's a disaster at first. No, this is design. God crafted this and executed it perfectly. You could say it this way. Christ's forsaking on the cross is preventative of your future forsaking. Because Jesus was forsaken by the Father, you will not be forsaken by the Father if your faith is in Jesus. Because Jesus was judged by the Father for your sin, that's preventative of you being judged by the Father for your sin if your faith is in Christ. This is why you know your salvation is secure, because Jesus paid for your sin and rose from the grave. This is why I say it's the best news imaginable. And what do you do with news that is this good? That your sins can be forgiven? That the sinless Son of God died in your place and resurrected from the grave so that you might live? What do you do with that news? Well, that's the point of the second half of the psalm. You respond to it in two ways, and that'll be your outline. Two imperatives, or two responses to the best news ever. Let me give them to you both real quick. It's worship and evangelism, Or I have written down, praise him and proclaim him. Praise him and proclaim him. If you're wondering, the praise him is an EM, by the way, if you're taking notes. Praise him and proclaim him. First, you see the praise him. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That's the first response to this. The response to Jesus being resurrected from the grave is a declaration that he will proclaim it that he will go into the world and tell other people what has happened. And that's exactly what Jesus does in his resurrection. He appears to his disciples and proclaims it to them. He appears to crowds and proclaims it to them. And then he sends his disciples to go on proclaiming it. And he's not just proclaiming it indiscriminately. He says, I will proclaim it to my brothers and sisters. The Hebrew word includes both there. I will proclaim it to those to whom he's related. Now, he's not speaking about his half-brothers and half-sisters, of which Jesus had many. He's speaking of the future generations that will be born that will place their faith in him. Hebrews chapter 2 says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Picture that. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, crucified and resurrected, is not ashamed to look at your sinful eyes and look at your sinful person and declare that you indeed are his brother. and he has a relationship with you. And this becomes the church. We gather together in a group Brothers and sisters, people not related by blood, but thicker than that, by faith. Faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what you see in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I mean, this Psalm, by the way, it was titled back up in verse 1, Doe of the Dawn, the inscription. And that phrase means help comes in the morning. What a great musical inscription for this song. That in the morning, the sun will rise, the grave will be open, the grave clothes will be laying on the ground, the Savior will be gone, helping his brothers and sisters, declaring he is resurrected from the grave. In the midst of the congregation, verse 22 says, I will praise you. It's not content to be praising in isolation. He wants to get together a group of his brothers and sisters, a group of those who believe in the Savior, and he's going to praise with all of them. Oh, you who fear Yahweh, praise him, verse 23. That becomes the imperative to you. If you believe the resurrection, your knee-jerk reaction should be to worship. If you believe this is the best news imaginable, it should be axiomatic that you want to sing about it that you'd want to declare it, that you'd want to worship because of it. And you don't do that in isolation. I mean, you can jam out to WGTS in your car all you want. (laughs) That's not the description here. The description here is not singing by yourself. The description here is not even you singing with your families at home, which I'm a big proponent of. Our family does family devotions, and at the end of them, we will sing a song together. That's not what's describing here, though. Here it's describing singing the news of the resurrection in the congregation, that the church gathers to do this. This is what we do when we come together, to hear the word of God taught and to sing in response to the truth that we find there. That's what makes the church unique. We're a worshiping group. And everybody who has faith in Christ is welcome to join this song even people like jacob look at verse 23 you who fear yahweh praise him all you offspring of jacob glorify him now jacob was not a good guy jacob was a bad guy he was a treacherous villain he'd betray anybody that gave him an advantage Last night at the Easter pageant, there was the, uh, the crucifixion or the uh, betrayal scene where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane happening right about here on the stage. And you've got the disciples over there. And you Peter with a sword out. And Jesus rebuking Peter. And Judas betraying Jesus. And the Roman guards pulling Jesus this way. And Judas running down the aisle right by us up the door, out that way. And everybody scattering. It's chaos up there on the stage. And one of my daughters leans over and whispers this question to me, hey, who's the bad guys again? <laughs> and my answer to it was they're all bad guys <laughs> everyone except jesus he's not a, he's the good guy but everybody else is the bad guy there were no good guys in that story they're all bad but jacob was one of the worst and it's interesting here the psalm 22 holds out that even people like jacob can be welcome in church they can come together in the congregation through faith that jesus died for their sins stand in awe of him verse 23 says all you offspring of israel if you have abraham's faith you're part of abraham's family and so rejoice that jesus is resurrected from the grave this is what you're rejoicing about specifically in verse 24 he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted notice how this is the answer to verse 1 verse 1 says that the afflicted was forsaken remember that was the problem in the first half of the psalm The scripture says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He comes to those who seek him. But the first half of the psalm shows the ultimate seeker, Jesus with the broken heart, and he is being abandoned and forsaken by God. But now you find out that's not permanent. Verse 24, he wasn't permanently despised by God. God the Father has not hidden his face from him forever, verse 24 says. In fact, he has heard when he cried to him. It's fun to wrestle in your mind like if Jesus is God, how can God abandon God? Those kind of questions. Again, we talked about them at length last week. I don't want to go over them all again this week except to say this. They're neat questions to think about but understand that they're, they're not eternal questions. The forsaking that happened was for six hours and it's done. And that's the point of verse 24. The father did hear the cry. He was forsaken until he died. But the Father did hear the cry and did respond in death. A slight encouragement to us to sometimes feel our prayers aren't answered or that God doesn't hear our prayers. <laughs> I mean, Jesus' prayers weren't answered. He was alive. And that came after his death. And because of that, we can worship because after his death also comes the resurrection. That's why verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. He's back in church again. I'm going to praise you in the church. I'm going to praise you with the gathering. Ecclesia is a Greek word for church. It just means the gathering of believers. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Now he's talking just for believers here. He's going to lead his life around believers. He has religious obligations. And he's not speaking of himself now. He's speaking of the followers of, of Christ. You have religious obligations in the church. There's a Christian life for you to lead. There's good deeds for you to do and to walk in. And Psalm 22 says you don't do them by yourself. You want to lead your life around other believers. You want to sing songs around other believers. You want to be obedient to Christ around other believers. I always roll my eyes when I meet someone who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church anywhere. Ow. I rolled my eyes too hard. That was the owl there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what kind of Christian is that? It's not a Psalm 22 kind of Christian. I mean, you see his words here? I want to sing in the congregation. The resurrection is such good news, I want to sing it, and I can't do all four parts by myself. The Christian life is so powerful, I want to live it, and I want to live it around other people in the congregation. That's the message of Psalm 22. And just, I mean, would you marvel for a second that the most immediate application of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a desire to sing about it in church? He doesn't go to, you know, Ephesians 5, and we're not going through the put-off, put-ons here. He goes right away, Jesus is resurrected from the grave, so I want to sing in church. Jesus is resurrected in the grave, so I want to live my Christian life around other people. I want to be with other believers and sing. I mean, Psalm 22 is such clear prophecy. And I had somebody tell me last week, oh, it's you know, it written 800 years before Jesus was born. I don't. It's hard for me to see how this could be prophecy about Jesus. After all, it's in the Psalms, it's not in the prophets. If it was meant to be prophecy about Christ, wouldn't it be in the prophets rather than in the Psalms? You don't have to agree with the question, but you understand the question. And it's the wrong book put this in isaiah and i'd have no problem believing it's prophecy but it's all the way tucked here in psalms why is it in psalms and you have to remind yourself what the word psalms means the word psalms means basically songs they're inspired songs it's from the the latin transliteration of a greek word if you care that much but you don't even know all that it's just the idea of inspired songs that god inspired certain songs to be sung The news of Psalm 22 is so powerful that you're supposed to sing it. So let me lead us in singing it right now. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We're not going to do that. But that's the idea behind this, that these words are meant to be sung. That's why it's in Psalms. It's such good news because look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. The poorest of the poor the poorest of the poor are welcome here in verse 26. Verse 27, the second part of verse 26, those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. This is not exclusive. This is for anybody who puts their faith in Christ. But it doesn't matter your socioeconomic class. This is for the, the rich and the poor as well. The afflicted are welcome to come. Those related to Jacob are welcome to come. Anyone is welcome to come and place their faith in Christ and, and rejoice. And when you place your faith in Christ, you will live, it says, forever. Forever. Even though you die, you'll live. That's the point of this. It's not a promise that you'll escape physical death. It's a promise you'll escape spiritual death and you will live forever. You might think, well, what do I do forever? I'd be bored in heaven forever. Boring. I'll tell you what it's like. Verse 26 says you'll be satisfied there. You're not going to be bored. It says satisfied. Whatever you're doing there, it will satisfy you. Verse 26 goes on to say, you will be praising him forever. So you will be singing and you'll be rejoicing and you'll be praising him because you'll have eternal life, life forever. And you can start that singing now. What a provocative challenge that in light of the resurrection, you're supposed to respond with singing about the resurrection. In fact, this song is going to become a mandate for missions. This, this mandate to sing, the musical mandate of this, you could say it this way, the musical mandate becomes a missional mandate. And that's the second point. You're supposed to praise him, but you're also supposed to proclaim him. It's not just about worship, it's also about evangelism. And that's verse 27 forward. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. Everybody in the world is gonna hear this song. And this is what I mean. It's supposed to be evangelism. You have to actually tell people about this. You know, we're a singing church. We sing loudly. I love that about Emmanuel. We sing loudly. But we even have D.C. Washington working for us. (laughs) But no matter how loud he is, it doesn't get through the bricks and across the street and into Starbucks. Maybe if the wind's behind it, it might. But you know what I mean. (laughs) We have to actually take the good news with our feet and then our lips into the world. The singing at church is what roots us. That's what gives us deep roots. That's what puts us and plants us here. But then we spread. We gather to worship together, and we scatter during the week to do the work of evangelism. And that's what verse 27 is describing. This is supposed to go to the ends of the earth. The people in the world are supposed to hear about this. The phrase ends of the earth should make you think of a map. Put a a flat world map. I know it's a globe, but work with me here. It's a flat world map. Put a cross in Jerusalem, the cross goes up and all of the world has these concentric circles kind of ricocheting out from Jerusalem. In book of Acts, Acts 17, Paul says the nations are going their own way. They're groping in the darkness, trying to crawl away from the cross, trying to move out away from Jerusalem. But the good news of what happens in the cross reverberates out and it goes out to the ends of the earth. And so as the people are crawling away from the cross, the news of the cross hits them. And when they hear it they turn around and they look at the cross and they're drawn back to it that's what this means they'll hear about it they'll hear the song you're singing they'll hear the jesus you're proclaiming they'll hear the resurrected savior you're believing in and when it hits them they will turn around and look to the cross and be saved that's verse 27. it's not just for the tribe of israel or the family of israel notice all the families of the nations shall worship before you verse 27 says all the families of the nations Anybody on the earth can believe this. It's good news for the whole world. This praise becomes missional and it will expand family to family, nation to nation. Everyone, it says verse 27, will worship before you. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to Yahweh. He rules over the nations. This will transcend the geopolitical boundaries. It will get outside of Israel. It will get outside of the Roman Empire. Every nation in the world will hear this good news. They'll all hear it because it's drawing them, it's magnetic. You realize that there's a better king than your king. That's the image there. Uh, it's good to be part of a nation, but when you become a Christian, you get a better nation. You get a higher nation. You know, nations are good, and they have their, their purpose. They check evil, and I'm glad to be part of a nation that promotes freedom, and you, know, you should be patriotic and pay your taxes, and the taxes coming up, by the way, that's free, that reminder right there is free, free for you it's good to pay your taxes it's even better to be a christian because you have an eternal heavenly citizenship you have a a, eternal king that outranks our earthly king we have a a king that rules over the small kings on earth verse 28 says kingship belongs to yahweh he rules over the nations all the prosperous of the earth will eat in worship Before him will bow down all those who go to the dust." I mean, earlier we saw this as a message for the poor and the afflicted. They could come and believe in Christ and be saved. Now we see the prosperous can come too. It doesn't discriminate between the poor and the rich. Either can be saved. Sometimes you think it's more remarkable the rich get saved, but that's what it's saying here. Even the wealthy can come to faith in Christ. Even the one, look at this, who goes down to the dust. Well, every human is going to go to the dust. We were made from dust. The dust will return. That's the the history of all mankind. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, that's speaking of Christ. On the cross, he couldn't sustain his life on the cross. He yielded his spirit. That's the promise, though. Just because you can't keep yourself physically alive doesn't mean you won't have eternal life. It's a promise for those who will die physically. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Remember, this is written 800 years before Christ. And he's saying that not only will Jesus come and be crucified and resurrected, but generations after that will hear about it. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm going to beat cancer. I got diagnosed with cancer. I'm going to beat it. I'm going I'm to... Take the fight, and I'm going to to win this thing. You know people that have said that kind of thing. It's totally different to say, I'm going to beat it, and I'm going to tell your great, 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 great grandkids about it. (laughs) I'm going to live forever. Well, that's delusional. But that's the promise here in Psalm 22, that not only will Jesus beat the cross, he will rise from the grave, and generations later, your grand, 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 great grandkids will hear about it. And they will proclaim it to people, look at verse 31 who aren't even born. That's the mandate here, that you share the good news. And you know, there's something in good news that makes you want to share it, isn't there? Social media understands this. You see a cute dog video and you feel like you have an obligation to that cute dog video to share it and let all your friends see the cute dog video. It's the philosopher's age-old question. If you take a cute picture of your kids, is it really a cute picture if the whole world doesn't see it? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. It's too deep for me. (laughs) If you believe the resurrection is the best news ever, is it really the best news ever if you don't share it? Or sing about it? Or delight in it? And as I said, this is a song that will echo not just through time, but through the world. It begins with the hilltops of Golgotha. That's where Jesus first sang it back in verse 21, declaring, you will rescue me. It'll be joined by the steps of the temple where the thousands gather in Acts chapter two and worship there. It'll echo through the hills of Judea as the gospel begins to go through that land. It will skip across the Mediterranean when Paul goes on his missionary journeys. It will cascade into Africa with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. It'll be rehearsed in Corinth with Paul there. It'll be performed in Rome and then it'll be taken on tour from Philippi. It eventually covers the whole earth even to far-flung places like Washington, D.C. And how does it spread? Because the nations turn to worship our greater king. And what do we worship in particular? Verse 31, that he has done it. That he has done it there's echoes in the psalm of course david mentioned it earlier philippians 2 verse 10 long before paul was even a persecutor he would have known this passage one day every tongue will confess philippians says you are lord one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of god the father that should take you back to verse 29 every knee will bow all those who go to the dust will bow no one escapes this but for those who bow and surrender to Christ in the next life, it does not result in worship. It does not result in, in love, in fellowship. It's reluctance, recalcitrance. How different to those who bow the knee here. That's the message of Psalm 22. That God desired for people to be saved and sent his son into the world. That his son died on the cross, but the power of the cross is such that it can forgive sins. That a son's resurrection shows that if you place your faith in Christ, you can have a relationship with the Father through Christ. That you will never be cast off, that you will never be judged for your sins because he has done it. He paid in your place. That would be my desire for you. I want anyone who's here this morning to know that there is a way to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it comes through believing that He died on the cross for your sins, that He rose from the grave for your eternal life. And by surrendering your life to Christ and believing in Him, you too can be saved. You can join the song of the great congregation. Lord, we're thankful that You're a saving God who did not hide the plan of salvation but brought it to us Freely and clearly and boldly. So now we want to rejoice in it as well. I pray for the hearts of anyone who's here today who's never given you their life before. I pray this morning you would open their hearts, that you would soften it to the truth of the gospel, that you would draw them to yourself. As you melt the, the cold heart, Lord, it would love for you through faith in your Son jesus christ we're grateful that you are a god who saves you're a god who hears the cries not just of christ and the cross but of us here and now from our sinful lips you will hear us and we ask you to save us i pray that there would be people there in this congregation this morning that do just that and we give you thanks for this in jesus name amen you have been listening to emmanuel with pastor jesse johnson you can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.